Good evening, it is wonderful to be here with you this evening. As we begin to celebrate the holiday season, we're going to talk about marriage and all that, the fun stuff about that. So, as we're in, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to thank David for his prayer on my behalf tonight. Um, he did say something in there about me spending a lot of time, and I don't know if it's a reference that I'm going to preach a long time or I've spent a long time. I don't know which one that was. As we look at chapter 7, and before we get to that point, we kind of got to get caught up as to where we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. As Paul opened up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first nine verses, it's about our position and our possessions in Christ, our position that we're sanctified, and there's a list of nine possessions that we have. And it's very important you understand as you read through 1 Corinthians that that is the foundation for which Paul views everything is that position and the possessions that we have in Christ, that we are sanctified. We have the possession of the gospel. We have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with one another. And all of those wonderful things. And from that point, that's the springboard for which he goes into everything else. And as he goes into chapter 1, he immediately begins dealing with the subject of those that were clamoring after other men. And that he deals primarily with this subject through the first three chapters and what they were doing was following after Paul or following after Apollos. And what they were actually doing was turning people away from the cross of Christ. And this is what it was all about in chapter 2. He goes in to discuss about the wisdom of the world and how that the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And how though that the foolishness of the cross is what saves us. He, in chapter 4, he talks about their maturity. If you remember when we talked about their maturity in that chapter is very important that these weren't fresh out of the water babes in Christ, if you will, that Paul has been gone for approximately three years. This is actually his second letter that he has written to them, and there's things that they have not matured or grown in at all, and it's causing a lot of problems, not only in their relationship with God, but their relationship with one another. And that is brought to light in chapter 5 as he begins to talk about sexual immorality and someone having a relationship with his stepmother. And he says there that not even the pagans look at this and go that this is a good idea and you seem to all be okay with it. And he instructs them in the ideas of what being one with Christ is and how can you marry yourself or conjoin yourself with a harlot. And we talked about there... It's not the I do's in the marriage that make it the marriage. There is a very physical act that makes that the marriage. In chapter 6, he deals with other relationship problems. They were suing one another in open court. And they were, Paul says, this isn't to your gain. You're essentially, you're giving the church a bad image by doing this. People are seeing all the problems of the church and you're suing one another. And who's going to want to be a part of that? And he advises them. He says, you know, why don't you just let yourself be defrauded? Wouldn't you be better off in that case? And he closes out chapter 6, going back to the subject of sexual immorality and that relationship and that you are the temple of God, which begs, which brings in chapter 7 and the subject of marriage. And this is, I'm going to be honest with you, there are two chapters as I've viewed the landscape of 1 Corinthians that I've not wanted to deal with. And chapter 7 is one of them. Chapter 11 is the next one that I do not want to deal with. And so we're going to look at 
the subject of marriage today, and the next few chapters are all kind of personal problems or personal liberties that they deal with. And chapters 11 through 14, it's about worship problems, and they're nested in there is that subject of love and how important that is, not just in the sense of dealing in worship, but in all aspects and facets of our life. And he closes out in chapter 15, looking at the subject of problems with concerning the resurrection. So, Tonight, as we begin looking at chapter 7, there's a lot of uncomfortable things to deal with. There are some G-rated things that we're going to have to discuss, but we have to discuss them. That's one of the things that Trevor and I were talking tonight about that is very uncomfortable whenever you do a book study. You have to deal with it. You can't just skip it as much as you want to. You have to deal with it, or you're a coward. So, you, you have to go through these subjects and deal with them. So, as uncomfortable as it is, seems and you have to hear it, just know that it's ten times more uncomfortable for me to have to say it. Just, we can all have that comfort here tonight as we begin this discussion about questions and marriage. So, he's concluded chapter 6 talking about sexual immorality. The next chapter is about marriage and what is the outlet to not, be involved in sexual immorality. Marriage. That's how you deal with that problem. He began saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, you just said we're going to talk about marriage, and then he immediately says it's a good idea for you not to have sexual relations for, with a woman. So as Paul, the question is, should they remain single? So Paul says right at the beginning, that concerning the matters which you wrote, there's some obvious questions that come out of it, although they're not ever stated, but they're obvious questions. Should they remain single? And Paul says, you know, it's good for a man not to touch or have sexual relations with a woman. Now in verse 6, it says, now is a concession. This is Paul speaking in counsel. Not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of the kind and one of another. To the unmarried in the window, widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So I want you to remember that phrase there. To the unmarried in windows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So Paul has dealt with this subject of sexual immorality. And if you can't control yourself, then you should marry. And he says to the unmarried in windows. And to the unmarried and widows. But why would Paul give any type of counsel, knowing the subject of sexual immorality, why would he give it a counsel that says, you know, I wish you could be like me and not marry? Why would he say that? Well, we get our answer later on in the chapter. The reason he tells them this is he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, this is the only passage in the New Testament that I can think of in which Paul deviates multiple times and says, this is coming from God and this is coming from me. There is moments in here where he says, I'm giving you essentially my counsel. And then he goes back and says, this is actually what is coming from God. So consider some of this advice from Paul from his experience in life. And he says, that's what he's saying here. I'm giving my judgment. In this situation. Now, given Paul's experience, you would say that his judgment's pretty valid. And it, 
what he's going to say needs to be listened to. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And he goes on to talk about, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. If you do marry, you've not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, in verse 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. In verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. This is the reason that he gave that counsel. I wish that you were as me and could remain single. And here's why. Present distress, there's problems going on, and there are more problems coming. Now, in light of what we just studied in October over the book of Revelation, there were a lot of problems that were coming. And what was the objective of John whenever he wrote to the seven churches of Asia? As he identified the good and the bad and what was going on, what was, what was his objective? His objective was their focus. You needed to be focused in the right place or else you're not going to survive from a spiritual standpoint. Paul's doing the exact same thing here. He wants them to have the right focus. And he's telling them, hey, if you're married, <coughs> in verse 33, but a married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. The married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this to your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. And he gives the contrast to that. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of who? The Lord. What was the reason for this necessity to focus just the same as it was in Revelation? You're going to have some persecution you're going to have some things that are coming upon you that you're going to have to deal with. And guess what? If you don't have a wife, it's a lot easier. If you don't have a husband, it's a lot easier. There's no doubt about that. Think about when you were single. Or for those of you that are single. You don't have to worry about, what do I got to do to make my wife happy? Or what do I got to do to make my husband happy today? What do I got to do to make these ankle biters happy today. You don't have to worry about that. Who are you worried about? You and yourself. So in the context, once again, the context is very important. In the context of current persecution and persecution that was coming, Paul gives them this advice and counsel. Now, what does that mean for you and I today? Well, the context of our lives is we live in a life which we have no persecution or Relatively small persecution. Go on and get married. Take a wife. Flee sexual immorality. Use the outlet which God has given you. Now, in the event that some sort of, we pray it doesn't happen, but if some sort of persecution does come our way and there's suffering, there's murder, people being thrown in jail or thrown in prison for their faith, then this advice still heeds the same as it did 2,000 years ago. Whatever the situation in life is coming, that's how you heed that advice and that counsel. So as he's giving them this advice, he then turns on to another question, 
Should they have marital relations? A little bit of context once again is there were those that were advocating for celibacy. Whether you were married or unmarried, there was the advocacy for celibacy and that you shouldn't have marital relations at all. And Paul answers this question also. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except, except perhaps by headache. I've got work to do. My back hurts. That's not what he says. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You may, that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again. For what reason? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's two things I want us to notice about this first and foremost. Number one thing that jumped out to me, the importance of prayer. If Paul says you need to, you can set this thing aside that's very important, for the purpose of prayer, that, that means the purpose of prayer is extremely important in our lives. Number two, in context of today and even then, whenever you think about it, he's talking about them not being tempted. Not being tempted by Satan. Overcoming the temptation of Satan. And that temptation would be sexual immorality. It would be an adulterous relationship, which he dealt with in chapter 5. For us today, it's the same thing. Having an adulterous relationship, if that need, that physical need, that, that outlet that God has given us is not being used or not being supplied, what happens? It's happened time and time again throughout the history of man. Somebody goes and finds that outlet somewhere else. And in today's society, where else do they find that? We talked about it when we talked about chapter 5. They find that in pornography. That's a temptation that Paul didn't have to deal with in that time, but it's something that's readily available on our phones and in our pockets every day. And if a need is not being supplied or a need is not being met, where do people tend to turn? To pornography. So husbands, take care of your responsibility. Wives, take care of your responsibility. Your body is not your own. Your body belongs to your spouse. That's an instruction that God has given us. And this speaks to the beauty of marriage. This speaks to the beauty of what God has given us to overcome sin. That we come together and overcome sexual immorality. The idea that what Paul deals with in the beauty of marriage, and this chapter is very, not necessarily cold, but it's very blunt and straightforward. But the idea of what marriage was in that time frame, and when you think about it, it's not marriage like what we have today. A lot of marriages were arranged type marriages. A lot of marriages were just out of necessity, out of money and everything else. It wasn't about picking a soulmate and having that. But whenever you 
look at what Paul thought about it, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, where he talks about the love of a husband towards his wife, and he talks about that respect or that reverence from the wife towards the husband, that this is something that was meant and intended by God to be a very beautiful thing, and this shouldn't be cast aside because that's all part of it. And as uncomfortable as it is for us to talk about it or even read those words, it's a necessity that we know we have to have. Just like food, air, and water. For a very specific reason, for us to be holy before God. And the irony that you think about, that act helps us accomplish holiness. It's strange to me, but that's exactly what it was for. So Paul, in dealing with this subject with marital relations, he goes on to then turn to that point where he wants to talk about the subject of separation. And this is the other uncomfortable part of this passage. <coughs> now, before we get into this, we read the verses he says in chapter verse 11. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, before we break this down and start looking at words and things like that, I'm going to give you what maybe what we call a traditional view of passages such as this. And a traditional view of a passage like this is one that says, if you divorce and then remarry, you're living in sin. That's kind of the traditional view. And before we do that, I kind of want to just go through some logical things that didn't make sense to me when you read passages like this and leave it even within the context of who Paul is talking to and the culture of that time, even in Corinth. Whenever you think about the subject of divorce, it has been around almost as long as men and women began getting married. And every culture has different ways they've gone about it. In the Roman culture, they had multiple stages of types of marriage. And they had multiple stages of divorce. At one point, a woman could not ask for a writ of divorce. Only the husband could. And then laws changed. And at this point that we're in right now, in context of historically, the woman could get a divorce. And the woman could ask for a divorce. So, you think about historically how they went about divorce. Divorce for a woman could be a very powerful thing. I want you to really understand that the divorce for a woman in Rome in this time was actually more powerful than it was for a woman in the United States in our time. When a man and woman got together, a woman's family would give what they called a dowry. Which, that dowry usually had to do with money, land, or business. Now, if a divorce came about, guess where that dowry went back to? It went back to the woman. Now, this woman was then freed from her husband, and also she was not under her father's home anymore because she had been married. So a woman could now have a bit of a 
piece of power that they had never seen before and honestly since then had not ever seen since. That's why in Rome you saw women have power and have the ability to sway a lot of political things that you didn't see for a very, very long time. They were kind of, they were what you would call, you know, a more liberal society as far as that's concerned. You think about the divorce in the United States. Did you know up until 1970, you could not get a divorce except in a couple of states for any reason other than adultery, abuse, or abandonment? And you had to be able to prove that. In 1970, the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, who had been divorced, passed the law that said you could get a divorce for any reason, which is where the term irreconcilable differences came from. And once California passed that law, it spread through the the rest of the United States. And it's from 1970 forward, the rapidity of which Divorce happened in the United States was astronomical. Not only did it change divorce, but it changed many people's view on marriage in general. The idea that I, not necessarily in this for the long haul, that if I don't like it at any point in time, I can get out. That changed in 1970. And it's a battle that we've been fighting ever since then. And whenever you look at the traditional view in light of all of that background of history of what went on with divorce, and the traditional view is if you get a divorce and you remarry, you're living in sin. Just logically think that through that a person is stuck in sin the rest of their life if they remarry. That there is no opportunity for them. You are willingly sinning against God, and you know the answer to that question on the other side of eternity. So the person that gets divorced no longer has this outlet that Paul has been talking about. What was the purpose of the outlet The marital relation. What was the purpose of that? To flee sexual immorality. So that you wouldn't be tempted by Satan. So in a traditionalist view, you have to say, well, you're just stuck dealing with the temptation of sexual immorality the rest of your life. And you can never remarry. When God all along has given this beautiful way to avoid that. It just doesn't match up to logic. The second thing is there's a very lack of compassion in that thought process. And the reason I say that is there is a, from a traditionalist view, there's a certain stigma that comes with the subject of divorce. Even for people outside the church. And it has an effect on our ability to evangelize and spread the gospel. When you pretty much say you mess up and you messed up for life. This is something that's extremely personal to me. 
My mom and stepdad come from divorce. How would it be if this idea of viewed of divorce was placed on them? And you can say, oh, well, it's you were that was before you were in the church. How effective do you think we can honestly be if we take that standpoint? Even those are that are outside the church. Now that's just the musings of a 47-year-old overweight bald guy. Take those for what you will. Now let's deal with the passage. The wife should not separate from her husband. So that word separate first and foremost, what does that word mean? That word comes from a Greek word called chorizo. Chorizo. It's actually, if you want to think about it, it's chorizo. That, that, that's what it is. I, it's, it's not good meat, though. So that word, separate, or chorizo, chorizo, is never interpreted in the Scriptures as divorce. Not one time. Not a single time is it interpreted as divorce. Every time it's separated, it's interpreted all 13 times either as separate or depart. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as Paul begins this subject, he first goes to the wife and says, you shouldn't separate from your husband. Now, if that word isn't divorce, and then later on he, he does tell the husband that he shouldn't divorce his wife, but to the wife, why the different need to say two different things? Culturally, it was easier for a woman, it was easy for a woman to get a divorce in Rome. But there was this process, and it wasn't a court process. There were witnesses and things like that that had to be involved that said this is what happened and they should get a divorce. But there was a time frame in which a woman could separate from her husband and what would happen a lot of times in that separation, she would go find another husband. And Paul's saying you can't do that. The second word in there, if she does, she should remain or remain unmarried <clears throat> or be reconciled to her husband. So the word remain. As I read this and read, you know, a number of books and articles about this subject, that word remain. It seems like a lot of times we add a word after remain. And that word is forever. that they should remain forever unmarried. That's not what Paul says. Whenever you look at the word remain, and you see other examples of that, in Christ's instruction to the disciples, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages, do not go from house to house. He didn't intend for them to remain forever in that home. He goes on to tell the husband not to divorce his wife. Now, when you marry this passage up to passages such as uh, 
Matthew chapter 19, which that's a whole different study in and of itself. But when you lay these passages up next to each other and the subject of divorce, Paul was dealing with, Christ was dealing with a cultural thing and Paul was dealing with a cultural thing. The Pharisees were trying to manipulate Christ and Paul was dealing with a cultural thing in which a husband could easily divorce his wife. So the admonishment is not to divorce. Here's the funny thing about this. Whenever you view everything through kind of this traditional thing, and for years that's the way I did. Every passage about marriage becomes a marriage eligibility passage. And we miss the point. What was the point in this? What was the point in what Paul was trying to drive at? <coughs> reconciliation. He's wanting reconciliation. That's what Paul was trying to get. Since the subject and men and women have been able to get married, there's been problems. There's been times in which husbands and wives did need to separate. But the objective was always the reconciliation for them to come back together as husband and wife. Now, in our modern view of marriage, you know, if my wife comes to me and says, you know, I'm tired of looking at your stupid face every day, I'm done. That was all on her. What did I have to do with that? I mean, other than having the stupid face, but what did I have to do with that choice and that decision? So then I've got to suffer the rest of my life and be celibate the rest of my life? It doesn't marry up, does it? There's a good use for that word. Earlier when we were reading verse 8, he gave advice to two groups of people. He said the unmarried and the widows, didn't he? Now we read that word in a traditional view and say the unmarried, that means those that have never been married. What if he's talking about those that have been divorced? As a matter of fact, I submit to you that he's giving room for that because later on in verse 27, he says this, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Let me ask you a question. Are you free from a wife? Is someone who's never been married free from a wife? Now, there might be some people who say that. But that's not what Paul's saying. Are you free from a wife? Have you ever had a wife? Guess what? If you've ever had a wife, the other category is the widows. So he's not talking about widows. He's talking about being freed from a wife. So what category would that be? 
other than someone who has been divorced. The admonishment is to not divorce. But it does happen. There is no doubt that that happens. The problem that we've had historically with that subject, though, is we don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And to me, it's relatively simple. What Paul wanted was marriage as God viewed it. But guess what? You and I, we're humans. We sin. Marriage happens. What do we do then? Do we shun somebody? Do we cast them away? Or do we embrace it? And have them deal with their sin. What got you to that point? You don't want to do that again. It's like the woman at the well when Christ was talking to her. And the number of husbands that she had. And what did Christ say to her? He's like, even the man you're with isn't your husband. But what did he have on that woman? Compassion. When we come on this subject, that is the one thing that over and over again as I read the commentaries and the books and the articles, you can see and separate the two in those two categories, a lack of compassion and a desire to be compassionate. And whenever you consider Christ and His interactions with sinners and the constant compassion that He had, That's the path that I choose to follow. I choose to look at the marriage between a man and woman as a God-given gift, but also understand that we are weak and we fail, and that doesn't mean that somebody has to suffer for the rest of their life and not have the outlet which God intended for each and every one of us. So Paul turns to the subject from husband and wife that are believers to the husband and wife that are not believers. Well, let me rephrase that. The husband or spouse, one spouse is a believer and the other spouse is not a believer. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Later on in verse 15, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So now we've got a different scenario here. You've got a scenario in which you have the husband or wife that believes and the husband and wife that doesn't believe. Now, once again, you have to have historical context here to understand everything that's going on. In the time of Rome, it was ideal or common, and even in some places it was law, that when a husband took a wife, she took on his pagan cult and then partook in the pagan rituals of her husband. Now, she may have had some other pagan thing that she followed, but now she goes to this pagan thing. Very strange, but that's the way it was. So, you have this thing called Christianity that then explodes onto the scene 
And as people spread the gospel, maybe a husband believed it and the wife didn't. And they said, okay, that's your choice, that's your decision. Well, now you've got this weird thing that they've never had before. What's the wife to do in a situation like that? The other problem was, and you've seen this, you may have seen this in your life, it's been the same problem for 2,000 years, is when people become Christians, they do some extreme things. I heard a guy one time sold his car because he sped. I was like, man, I would be in a world of trouble. People make some extreme changes in their life that they don't necessarily need to, and he talks about that more here in a little bit. But that was something that could happen. This extreme change would happen in their lives, and now you have this believing person and this unbelieving. Well, he says, you know, if that person consents, you need to stay with them. And he gives a reason for that. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. The influence of the spouse on the other spouse cannot be overlooked. I've seen it happen multiple times in my life where the husband or wife was the believer, and then years later, that spouse became one of the greatest advocates for the gospel of Christ. Why would you want to cut that opportunity off? He says in the event, though, that they do want to leave, the barns, the cattle's already out of the barn, you let them go. As to the extremes that happened at that time and still happen today, he says, was any at the time of his call already circumcised? Why would he ask that question? Well, leading up to that, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. So if, you've, if you were already circumcised, which was the Jewish tradition, then he says, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Why? Circumcision, he goes on to say, really doesn't matter. But it's the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So if you're a slave, he goes on to them talking about being a slave. If you're a slave, you don't take off. He does give them the counsel that if you have an opportunity to avail yourself of that position, go ahead and do that. But if you're a slave, don't try to get out of being a slave and run away, which kind of you know, speaks the beauty of the Scriptures because that's exactly what the book of Philemon is about. A slave that ran away because he became a Christian. And what does Paul do? Sends him back to his master with a letter. That's the exact same counsel that he gave here. There are people that when they became Christians, they made extreme changes. Divorce was one of them. In today's society, it's still the same thing. Extreme changes happen. I've got to quit my job. I've got to do all this. And in the event that Extreme change needs to be made. 
Example would be, you know, you're, you're hanging around the wrong group of friends and you need to cut them off. Well, yes, that's, that needs to happen. But you don't need to cut off the way in which you make money unless that's causing you to sin. The extreme changes that people make because of Christ is what Paul was trying to not get them the decisions to make. Why is that important? He says, so whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Why was that important? It was important not only in the subject of being a slave and in the example of Philemon and how he sent him back. It's important in the subject of marriage and the influence of marriage and the gospel and what it could do for other people's lives and change people's lives. Not these great extremes. You have a bunch of extremes going on and what do people think? Well, they think that group of people are crazy. They're over here, you know, pulling snakes out of a pit. The intention was for them to remain consistent with God. The last two words of that phrase are very important. With God. As we close tonight and we think about what Paul was talking about at the end of chapter 6 in sexual immorality, as he before he transitioned into chapter five, 7 talking about marriage, he talked about them joining themselves with a harlot and that those that join themselves to God or Christ, they're doing it, they join their spirit to Him. And that's what Paul was driving home, even in this subject of marriage, was to get away from sexual immorality and use this beautiful tool that he had blessed mankind with and use it to its full advantage. And that even when problems come up, there's still the hope of reconciliation, there's still the hope of what you can have as a married unit. In the event that bad things happen, divorce occurs, that doesn't mean that compassion is taken out the window. That doesn't mean that someone is meant to suffer the rest of their life and not have take advantage of the outlet that God had given them. I want you to think about that tonight. And think about the outlet that Christ gave you in a spiritual sense. He gave us the greatest outlet that we've ever had. Whenever He said, I will submit to the creation that I created and allow myself to be murdered. He gave Himself as that outlet. And said for our sins, He would take that for us. It's amazing the harmony of these consistent principles over and over and how they're played out on the cross. This evening, if you've not taken advantage of that outlet that Christ gave you, I ask that you take some time to think about that. He asked that we submit to Him, we submit to His plan, we submit to Him in the waters of baptism. If you've not taken the opportunity to take advantage of that full outlet, I beg that you do that. Also understand that there are times that we need prayers and we need strengthening, we need comfort. 
We can help you with that tonight. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to sing the song that has been selected.